Welcome to Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Gretchen McCulloch. And I'm Lauren Gorn. And today we're getting enthusiastic about the space between words and affixes, also known as clitics. But first, we have an announcement. We're doing a special drive to encourage people to become patrons of Lingthusiasm this month. If you've been meaning to become a patron and just never quite gotten around to it, now is a great chance to join. We're going to be sending out packs of four Lingthusiasm stickers to everyone who's a patron at the Lingphabet tier on November 3rd, 2021. This is going to be a Lingthusiasm logo sticker, two different versions of our Schwa Never Stressed stickers in different colors, and a bookplate sticker for Because Internet, which Gretchen is going to sign for you. Yes, I am. Make me sign a lot of stickers. You can stick these stickers on your laptop, your water bottle, anywhere else you want to have an excuse to bring up how cool linguistics is in polite company. If you're already a patron at a lower level, first of all, thank you. And second, this is a great reason to upgrade as there are some cool things available, especially if you stick around in this tier, including your name and favorite IPA character on our supporter wall of fame. If you don't already have a favorite IPA character, you can take our extremely scientific which IPA <laughs> character are you quiz and find out. <laughs> we hand choose all the IPA characters for our supporters on the Wall of Fame. From the results of this highly scientific <laughs> quiz. Plus, you also get a Lingthusiast sticker after three months at this tier that Patreon sends you. Oh, that's so many stickers. That's five stickers. Two different things in the mail. <laughs> If you're already supporting us at this level or a higher level, you also get the sticker pack and we'll be sending you a message to remind you to make sure your address is up to date so we know where to send those stickers. And finally, all patrons at all levels, we appreciate you so much. As we say every episode, it's our patrons who keep the show ad-free and who also get access to monthly bonus episodes, including our most recent, number 54, an interview with Emily Greff of Planet Word. And you also have access to our Discord to chat with other Lingthusiasm and Linguistics fans. We had a really fun time talking with Emily from Planet Word, and hopefully we'll get to check out that museum at some point. So go listen to that. Okay, Lauren, I have a sentence for you and a task, Ooh. if you're okay with that. Yep, sounds very exciting. So I'm going to give you a sentence. Mm -hmm. And then in this sentence, I want you to identify the words and the affixes. Okay. So that's like prefixes and suffixes. I'm going to grab two different colored pens. I'm very excited. Okay, this is like one of those like grade eight English class underlining things. Yes. This is why I love linguistics puzzles. Get to crack out the colored pens. Exactly. All right. So the sentence is, later today, I'll know if I have to get some prizes for Helen of Troy's competition or if it isn't necessary. Before I even begin to pull this wonderful sentence apart, can we just revel in the fact that so many sentences that get said have never been said in the history of humanity before. I'm pretty uh, sure that this one has not been said in the history of humanity before. But I like this sub-story of the Iliad that I've never heard before, so I'll go with it. I have an advantage that I am looking at this sentence on a piece of paper. Yes. And I'm pulling out lots of words. Prizes is a word, but I can pull prizes apart because I can have prize and then the plural s. Mm -hmm. So prize gets one color and the S gets another little color. Uh, we've also got competition. I know com is a prefix and titian is a suffix that can change the word. So maybe like compete and 
ishin or something like that? Yeah. We have a whole episode on morphemes and how they build up into words. We'll link to that in the show notes. So I feel pretty comfortable with the things that are words, and I feel pretty comfortable pulling out things that are affixes. But Gretchen, I only have two colors of pen, and I've got some words that I'm a bit stuck on. Okay. Hafta, as you have pronounced it, and as it's written, H-A-F-T-A. <laughs> as I very carefully said, hafta, which is not my usual reading vocabulary, but but there we are. Casually, carefully <laughs> pronounced it. I know that that is an informal pronunciation of have to, I have to get, mm-hmm. but it's one of those things that everyone does and it's so common. I want to kind of treat, kind of, treat have to like <laughs> a single word. So I'm a bit stuck on that one. But you're not sure if you're gonna or but you just sort of wanna just to <laughs> put a few more in there. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to put have to with a bit of a question mark and I'm going to add mm-hmm. aisle to that category because mm. again- That all at the end of aisle, I know and you know that that's a conjoined form there. It's normally will as a a full thing, but it can just as easily be aisle. Mm -hmm. So I feel like all is kind of an affix, but it's like more wordy than an affix. Yeah, because, you know, for something like prizes, you don't know what the z is coming from. There's not some other word that you know where it's from. Yeah, exactly. And then... Helen of Troy's is an interesting phrase because it's got that sir on the end, but unlike the sir in prizes, it's relating to the whole of Helen of Troy's. It's not just relating to Troy there. So again, question mark on that one. And mm-hmm. the and in isn't is a bit like the all in aisle. Mm, so we've got three sort of Tricky things at the boundaries, which I have to confess that I carefully constructed this sentence to make it a tricky situation, because we want to talk today about what's going on with things that are kind of word-like, but also kind of affix-like, and are in that tricky boundary in between the two. And so we've got a few examples, like I'll have to, Helen of Troy's, and isn't. We not only have talked about morphemes in an episode, we've talked about words, and we talked about whether something is a word or not in a way that was really focused on meaning. And for these, a lot of it is not so much about meaning, but about the shape of the affix or the shape of the word that it would have been as a as a full word. And so it's kind of revisiting that topic, but from a, a different perspective. Yeah, I think the thing that's satisfying to me is that these sort of nebulously defined word and affixy like things have a name for them, which is not as well known as word or affix, these kind of well known things, but they're called clitics. And it's hard to, when we were looking up, we were preparing for this episode, we were looking up, okay, you know, what is the formal definition of a clitic anyway? Surely someone's written this. Uh, you know, we could just read out. Uh, and the answer is that Linguists disagree. <laughs> Indeed. Linguists disagree a lot about exactly exactly what a clitic is, precisely because it occupies that interesting space between, you know, here are these things that you can very clearly say them all by themselves in isolation, like I and will and is and not – and then here are these things that, you know, very clearly you have to put them on a word and they're, you know, incoherent without a word. And then some stuff that sort of floats around the sentence where you're like, okay, maybe maybe this is a full word, maybe this is attached to something else. 
it's a little bit unclear what the status is, but different clinics can behave in sort of different sorts of ways. And they can all be sort of lumped together as here's this big category of stuff that we don't know what to do with. <laughs> or <laughs> you can be someone who's really a splitter and saying, okay, no, these ones, I think they are more like actual affixes. And these ones, I think they are more wordy. And these are the true clinics that are the smaller set in the middle. Like it really depends on if you want to be a lumper or a splitter there. And in order to decide what is and isn't a clitic, you have to use some rules and principles that are specific to the language that you're talking about. And when it comes to drilling into the specifics of English and how the grammar of English works, you can't get much more drilling down and specificity in a single book than the Cambridge Grammar of the English Language. And so it's time for another episode of Gretchen's Adventures in Seagel. Uh, yes, so I have a massive copy of the Cambridge Grammar of the English Language. It's over a thousand pages. It has made an appearance in some previous Lingthusiasm episodes because <laughs> it's got these very, very detailed descriptions of various aspects of what's going on in English. And when it comes to a phenomenon like clitics, where there's a lot of slightly different things happening between different examples, something that has a lot of detail is exactly what we need. Right. So one of the things that CGL talks about with respect to clitics is that there's sort of a, a grade in English between the ones that have a very restricted set of places where they can be found and ones that have a bit less restriction in terms of where they can be found. So even within clitics, there are immediately, as soon as you get there, subcategories. Mm -hmm. And one of those is, so clitic forms of am, are, have, and will attach only to a subject pronoun rather than to a, a full noun. So you can have I'm, we're, they've, he'll. Okay. So Sejal says that if you have a compound subject with a noun and a pronoun in it, so like a longer thing, but it still has a pronoun, you don't generally get something like Joe and you are in for a shock. Joe and you're in for a shock. No, I don't think I'd say that. You actually struggled to say it. You didn't even get it right the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read it on the page and I was like, no, I can totally say that. And then I'm reading it out loud and I'm like, no, I can't actually say Joe and you're in for a shock. Yeah. Maybe I can say both of you've been pretty inconsiderate. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Both of you've been pretty inconsiderate. It definitely sounds like you're squishing two different sentences together that don't belong together. What do you think about the Smiths will be there and so will I? Oh, that one actually is less bad. Yeah, I don't I don't mind that head. as much. Yeah. Yeah, you can use something like paddle do it. So you can put it on just a noun by itself, but if you have mm -hmm. this sort of compound subject, it gets a little bit less uh pleasant to my intuitions. Joe and you're in for a shock just really doesn't work for me actually. <laughs> Which is impressive that it's getting stronger is not working for you, because normally once you've been exposed to these things for a while, you're like, maybe? I don't know anymore. Yeah, and you can put it on something like, you could have been hurt, the VE works there. The one that I find more fun, and this one is less restricted, so clitic forms of is and has, you can put them in a lot of places. Yep. So you have something like, jeans here and jeans taken it, which is actually sounds the same as jeans like the pants. Yes, that is true. So that really, <laughs> uh, that really works. You can also put it on longer phrases, which don't work as well for are or have. So you can say something like, which dog's been on the sofa? Sounds fine to me. Mm -hmm. That they're wet's obvious enough. I'm going to have to put them in the dryer because that they're wet's obvious enough. Yeah. Yeah. 
What do you think is going to happen? Totally fine for me. Absolutely. Ed, I think, is going and so's Sue. Great. I'm looking forward to seeing them there. (laughs) Why is this happening? What the heck's she doing? All of these totally fine. You're like, yeah, I can put is and has anywhere. It's it's fine. Yep. And then they point out that there are some bad examples. Okay. Please break my brain. (laughs) So what do you think about what salads that man over there eating? What salads that man over there eating? That works for me. So this one is with a percent sign. So some people have it and some people don't. I find it not quite as good as the others, but I, I think I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. Don't use more force than's absolutely necessary. <laughs> don't use more force than's absolutely necessary. I don't think you like that one. <laughs> no, that's weird. Yeah, so that's also a percent sign one. Some people might like it, some people might not. Yeah, I should say it's weird for me. I think maybe I can get it, but maybe not. Maybe my you know impressions are just broken from reading this book. But here's one they don't think people are going to be able to get, and that's never is it going to be easier. Never is it going to be easier. It definitely is a bit trippy uppy. And what do you think about she often's right about things? <laughs> is that one a percent? No, that one is star. That one is nobody. Okay, I am I am relieved. <laughs> never's is also is also nobody, but she often's right about things and never is it gonna be easier. And, and yet she often is right about things. That would be Fine. Fine. Yeah. Fine. And this sort of brings us to a post that went viral from Tumblr a while back. Mm -hmm. And this was somebody, Shower Thoughts, observing that contractions function almost identically to the full two-word phrase, but are only appropriate in some places in a sentence. It's one of the weird quirks of this language weave. (laughs) (laughs) It's because have there is being used as an auxiliary instead of the full form of having an ownership. We have... Maybe. So what do you think about a further comment on it? Some people say the English language is confusing, to which I say, it's. (laughs) That one definitely feels like it's missing another word, at least. Yeah. And I'm very delighted that I added a comment to it myself uh, four years ago, and that that has gotten picked up in the the form that keeps getting screen capped and passed around, which was, that's the kind of linguist I'm. That absolutely does not work. (laughs) Congratulations on making more than one sentence that has broken my brain this episode. It actually took me quite a long time to come up with that sentence, so I'm really pleased. I do see that circulating occasionally, so it's very satisfying. Yeah, every so often I see it and I'm like, oh, that that was me. I think it also speaks to a really interesting point about clinics in general, because sometimes one of the things that comes up when you're talking about reduced forms of words or, you know, smushing words together. And people will start saying like, oh, these are lazy or these are, you know, low effort. Why are people, you know, doing this low effort thing? Shouldn't everyone just be talking in like full words with lots of pauses in between them like a robot? Absolutely referred to your example as having casual features of English. So that's a slightly less judgy way of saying the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But the thing that's really interesting is there are these kinds of constraints. And so nobody who is saying, you know, I'm and I'll and I've and all of these things that everyone says is doing it in this weird position at the end of the sentence. If it was just about laziness and efficiency, you'd expect it to be able to be used everywhere. 
great. Like you'd expect it to just be like, okay, yeah, we're just going to do this low effort thing, but it's actually more effort, at least at some subconscious level, to be keeping track of like, okay, yeah, you can do this reduction thing in some places, but not in other places. Like imagine trying to explain that to a new speaker of like, oh yeah, well, no, we have this abbreviation form, but actually it's never put here. Like, wait, why? This is an extra thing to pay attention to. So there's a lot of interesting, subtle things going on in terms of where we use them. I hadn't even thought about the restrictions that clitic forms in English have until you showed me places they shouldn't be. <laughs> right. I hadn't thought of them either. This is why you, you go consult a grammar, because they've, they've gone through all this effort to make these beautiful ungrammatical sentences for you. <laughs> so reading CGEL about clitics also reminded me of this other thing that's sort of below the level of fully conscious speech in English, which is that there's a certain set of words that have stronger and weaker forms, like shorter and longer forms at a sound level. Okay. Because one of the features of a clitic is that it is reduced in terms of its sound compared to a full word. Right, exactly. Like you, do, you don't get a clitic that's like four syllables long, because at the point when it's <laughs> becoming a clitic, it's already like maybe it doesn't even have a vowel in it. <laughs> when Will attaches to something else as a clitic to make all... It, I, I, you never want to say like it can't happen because then there'll be one example from somewhere somewhere but like it would be supremely unusual for something to be a clitic and then become a lot longer yeah like i think it would be weird because the words that tend to become clitics are already words that have become grammatical words and that are really high frequency and those tend mm -hmm. to be short as well so i mean yeah. never say never maybe there's some language that does it but i think it would be uncommon and this gets us into this question of like, what are sort of words that are potentially good targets to become clitics? And these are often words that are already getting smaller phonologically. So in CJ, they talk about weak versus strong forms of certain words. Okay. I don't think I've had someone put this like this before. So what would an example of that look like? So their example is, I think Pat has seen it. And I haven't seen it, but Pat has. I don't even know what I'm listening for there. <laughs> <laughs> so you're listening for the word has. Okay. I think Pat has seen it. I haven't seen it, but Pat has. So that's the difference between has and has? And even shorter, because the Pat has seen it is often just is. Oh, yeah. Like there's an H written there, but Pat is, you probably don't even say it. And then has, has that H and it has a full vowel not this tiny schwa, and then they both have the, the z there. And so there's actually quite a difference in terms of how they're, they're pronounced. And there's about 50 words that CJ lists that have one or more weak forms, as well as a strong form. Okay. So it's going to actually be weird to read this list, because I'm going to have to read these words in strong form, because you would say them in strong form in isolation, because isolation is one of the environments where you use the strong form of a word. Okay. So this is words like a, as in like a car. Yeah, a car. Uh, am. I am. I am. Uh, and. And. Yeah, or, or just n. To the point where English speakers do the little n between words. Yeah. Yeah, fish and chips. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole list, but you can see that they're sort of like ah and am and and are all different types of things. One of them's a verb, one of them's a conjunction, one of them's an, an article, a determiner. And so there's a bunch of different categories. You have uh, some prepositions like for, 
which can be for, but also fur. fur. You have stuff like of, my, must, me, who, you, which can become you. And these are all small words. All of them are a single syllable. And if they begin with H, the H often gets Mm -hmm. kicked off. The thing I really like about A or N on that list, like a prize, Mm -hmm. is that this is part of an ongoing journey for that word. Yeah. Because that word started off as an, which was essentially the word one. Yep. And then one went off in one direction with all of its articulation still. And then an became a and is now just a. <laughs> yeah. And it's why you get things like alone. Exactly. Because it's like, or, or only, because it was own. Mm-hmm. And the fun thing is, is like, ah can be reduced to just a, uh, but of can also be reduced to just a, uh, and two can also be reduced to just a. Uh. So you have like, gonna, lotta, uh, a lot of things, gonna, go, and all of them can get reduced because they all occur in such different environments that it's never ambiguous which one is which. So what's interesting is that if a word becomes a clitic, mm-hmm. it's because a lot of the English word started out as a weak form of a word and then subsequently became a clitic. The thing that makes me so happy about this is when we started this episode, I thought we were going to look at what was between an affix and a word and that that was going to be clitics. And now I find out there's a thing between clitics and words and that everything is on these like processes and there are multiple steps that you can watch happen. Yeah. And the thing is that's interesting about the steps is they interact because Something can become a clitic if it's sort of already in the weak form and it can transfer, Mm -hmm. like become even weaker and become a clitic and sort of really hang on to or lean on to the word next to it. But the reason why you can't say something like that's the kind of linguist I'm is because you can't even use the weak form of am at the end of a word like that. Huh, yeah. How satisfying. So this was our, you know, I haven't seen it, but Pat has. You also can't say I haven't seen it, but Pat's. (laughs) <laughs> no, because I don't even know what that uh, is there. Yeah, yeah. But like, I, I think Pat's seen it. Fine. I haven't seen it, but Pat's. So this context forces you to use the strong form of the word, which means it's not even a possible target for becoming a clinic, which is one of those sort of subconscious things that you're like, I didn't even know I knew this. <laughs> hmm. I do feel like a lot of not ever noticing this phenomenon of weak forms is because we are so dependent on English writing mm-hmm. for the way we conceptualize words, even when we hear them. If you're a very literate English speaker, your perception of the written form can kind of play tricks on your brain in terms of the pronounced form. Yeah, like I said, I think Pat has seen it to you like several times and you were like, yeah, the H is still there. And I was like, I'm not saying an H because the writing is like, hey, look, there's an H. Mm-hmm. And it's just not there. Absolutely hallucinated that H there. Well, and the fun thing is, is not every language does this. So when I was studying Dutch for a bit, one of the things that was fascinating to learn was that they actually do have different spellings for strong and weak forms of their pronouns. So good. So for example, the Dutch word for me, which is, you can, you'll be able to see the cognates with English, Mm -hmm. can be written M-I-J, which is pronounced may. Or it can be written M-E, which is pronounced M. Mm. This is probably true of English as well. There's a, you know, emphasis, give it to me. And like, yeah, I gave it to me and then and then whatever. Like, there's probably a M form in English as well, but they're both written the same way. Yeah. And you do sometimes see this 
for pronouns, especially for third person pronouns, you know, like give it to him, give it to her, give it to them, give it to him. You sometimes see those written with an apostrophe instead of the H, but it's not something that you get like a table of, of like, make sure you learn these weak forms in the same way as Dutch. (laughs) No, I absolutely have not. (laughs) There is a fun story with actually this, um, if you say something like go get him. Yeah. What does that EM stand for? Uh, them, because it's third person, plural. Yeah. Well, you'd think, (laughs) because that's what our modern day third person plural is. Yeah. But like, in what other context do we drop a th sound? It's true. It's not one of those easy to lose sounds. Right. Like, because we have like a strong and weak form of the, you have like the or the, and then you have like the. Yeah. But when you're reducing it, you're reducing the vowel. You're not taking it down to E. True. And so the M is actually a form of hem, which was the object third person plural pronoun in Middle English. Oh, how satisfying. Right. Before we had like he, she, it, they, we had hey, heo, hit, and he. And these sound kind of extremely similar to each other. Mm hmm. And so there was some differentiation that happened. We acquired the form she, and then we also acquired the they and the them instead of he and hem from Norse. But kept our habit of using the old weak form. But kept the old weak form the same with that dropped H and it's just sort of crept along. And it's crept along in such an oral way, right? Because it's not, Hmm. you're not getting that from writing. You're getting it from other people speaking in a chain. This is true, although I do find it even more satisfying now that the Pokemon trainer, Ash, has the surname Ketchum. <laughs> Roots of his name are in Old English. <laughs> yeah, there's some there's some Old English stuff that's just getting, you know, respelled by modern speakers to refer to something. How delightful. This is actually something that I think is a really interesting area for development in English, because, you know, we have this, like, unstressed form in the they paradigm, which is sort of, it's a relative newcomer in English, even though it's centuries old. But other neo-pronouns in English, stuff like z, zem, you've got to think, okay, so they're going to need unstressed forms as well. Like they're going to need weak forms like z, zem as well, so that they can be used in all of the same contexts. Uh, And maybe people are already probably doing this subconsciously. Sounds like a fascinating research paper. As are, I think I should point out, like every single tiny digression we've been on and every single example Seagel gives has been agonized over and thought about, and the space that it fits in between words and affixes has been pondered over long and hard. And as we said, it is very dependent on the specific features of the language that you're working with to decide if something is an affix or a clitic. Um, so I thought I'd give an example from the languages that I work with when I had to decide writing the grammar of Yolmo if I was going to treat Mm. some things as affixes or some things as clitics. Oh yeah, please tell me how you made that decision. So because the criteria are language specific, like English, I was looking at things that weren't quite as attached to individual words as affixes. So there are affixes in Yolmo. There's one if you want to say that you're counting a number of people, you put an affix on the numeral. Mm Mm-hmm that indicates specifically that that numeral is related to two people or five people. And that can only ever go on a numeral. Okay. But then you have these affixes like the plural. Mm -hmm. So you might have the dogs 
or you might have the dog of my friends. And even though in English that sounds like a possessive, that's where you could put the plural in these languages. Oh, so the dog of my friends is actually like several dogs belonging to my friend. Yeah. Which is sort of like Helen of Troy's party or something like that. Like that's that S is actually possessed by Helen, not possessed by Troy. Yeah. And it's a bit more free-floating than the affix that has to go on a number. Hmm. And so you go, well, maybe it's a word, mm-hmm. but it can't be a word either because words have tone in Yolmo and mm. many Tibetan languages, and these plural markers don't have tone. And you go, well, it's not an affix because it's more free-floating, and it's not a word, so it doesn't have tone. It's a clinic. Yay, we have this third category. <laughs> Thank goodness I have more than two colored pens Mm -hmm. because for this part of this grammar, using the term clitic became incredibly helpful. And that's such a good example of how the diagnostic criteria is really language specific because uh, you're like, okay, well, it doesn't have tones, so it can't be a word. And I assume that there's an entire, you know, chain of logic for why all words have tone. Mm -hmm. But in English, this is like, okay, this is not the diagnostic criteria you're going to use. Absolutely. And some of the criteria in English around weak forms or reduced pronunciation doesn't work in these languages. So coming at it from a a language-specific perspective is really helpful. Sometimes also coming at it from a language-specific perspective will be influenced by like the history of the writing system for that language and how language Mm -hmm. is written down. Because, you know, if people are used to writing something as the full form, even though the speech sometimes for quite a long time has been reducing that more and more, there'll still be this tendency sometimes to like, okay, we're going to write out the full form and that's why it feels so recoverable. Or we're going to, you know, okay, yeah, but no one actually says it that way. But but there's still all this sort of written stuff that, that can influence what people are thinking about. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if English art and the would be more likely to be treated as clitics if they were physically attached to the words they were in front of. Yeah. Yeah. If they were written there with a little apostrophe or something. And when I was looking at this, I was surprised to find that some people think that nt, like isn't, can't, isn't actually a clitic in English. It's just an affect. It's on the whole word. Because I was like, but this is so clearly related to not. But also it like affects the vowels of the thing it's attached to. And you have stuff like won't, which isn't really transparently will-nt. And so maybe these are some reasons to say, actually, this is this is an affix now. It just happens to resemble the negative thing. I do wonder if English cycles of things becoming attached and becoming more like an affix have kind of been arrested a little bit because of that tradition of writing. There's this really fun one that I've noticed in English that really trips up people who speak languages with fewer vowels than English. Mm -hmm. And this is the can-can't distinction. So in English, in unstressed words, if you have a T or D after an N – it often gets deleted. So this is why you see like, you know, fish and chips with that and there. It happens all over the place. It happens constantly. You know, place names, people say Toronto without the the second T because it's something you say a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is super common in English, super, super normal. And, and it happens in all of these negative words, like don't becomes done, which is fine because it's not contrasting with another don. Oh, yeah. But if you remove the t in can't, you get can, which is... <laughs> confusing. Which is the positive form. But no, it's not actually confusing in practice for speakers of English who have all of the vowels that English is used to, because there's also a reduced form of can, which is can. So most English speakers, most of the time, actually make the distinction between can and can, 
where can is positive and can is negative, it's just got a full vowel. It's absolutely one of those things that, like, I will have to go back and find examples in my own speech before I believe that I do this. But I am open to being shown. <laughs> I have witnessed this in conversations where you have, like, one native English speaker and one second language English speaker, and the native English speaker be like, no, 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 I can do it. And the non-native English speaker would be like, but you're saying you can, but it seems from the context like you can't. And they'll be hyper-articulating the can with like even more emphasis on the vowel and still not putting the T in that would actually <laughs> let you figure out what was going on because the T is just so far gone. There's a fun example in the musical Hamilton mm -hmm. where there's a line about the young Alexander Hamilton who's poor and, and can't... Uh, you know, has no money and is is working in his his first job, and the line is trading sugarcane and rum and all the things he can afford. The way that the performer gives this real stress on can, like it's not even a reduced form anymore because he's putting this real stress on it. Mm -hmm. But there's no T, and it's extremely clear from context that he can't afford them. <laughs> it's very distinctly articulated, and there is no T there anywhere. <laughs> but as long as we have this writing system, people are going to hallucinate that T. Right. And if we were sensible, we could just spell them with different vowel symbols and actually just do the thing that we think we're doing. But we're not going to do that. <laughs> I feel pretty safe to say. Yeah. Another place where you see this sort of real, real effect of orthography is in French. Mm -hmm. So I came across a number of years ago, a Reddit post that alas, I cannot find anymore, where somebody had posted, hey, guys, I have this new conlang. It's got subject prefixes, it's got object prefixes, you can put negation as a prefix, you can do all this sort of stuff as a thing. And it was, you know, like, here's this conlang that's got these very long words that are all have, have all these different prefixes and, and so on stacked on them. What do you think of my new conlang? And if you read it out loud, it was actually French written phonetically. <laughs> what a sneaky joke. <laughs> and it's really interesting. And I know it was a joke. And I think that there are still arguments why French is not, you know, a massively, you know, agglutinative language with all these subject prefixes and so on. But ever since I read that joke post, I have never kind of been entirely certain anymore. <laughs> but again, you need something that's the equivalent of sea gel for French to do the hard work of picking it apart. Well, but not just sea gel for French, but it would have to be sea gel for spoken French, because written French yep. comes from this tradition where it's not. But modern day spoken French is quite divergent from written French. And there's even more of an aspect in learning how to read where you, you learn a bunch of stuff that used to be true. And then you mm -hmm. have to unlearn that to talk to people. So a really interesting example is like there are a lot of languages where, you know, you change the form of the verb and then you can tell what the subject is, right? Yeah. And this is still true in a bunch of, you know, other Romance languages, Spanish and Italian, you know, you change the verb and you can tell if it's if it's me or if it's you. In French, you do sort of change this in the writing, but what you actually do is you have to have the pronouns. So you have something like, je prends les crêpes, tu prends l'omelette, which is what you might say at a restaurant. I'll take the crepes. You can have the omelette. Thanks for ordering for me. I hate <laughs> making choices. <laughs> um, and so you have, you know, the je and the tu that's telling the difference there. Mm -hmm. But these are in French clitic pronouns. Like they're definitely at least clitics because you really have to put them and you have to sort of put them leaning on the verb and you can't say them in isolation. It's a really good diagnostic criterion. Yeah. You could in English say, who ordered the crepes? You could say, me. You could say, it is I, if you want to sound <laughs> kind of formal. Both of these are sort of okay. Yeah. In French, you cannot say je. 
Like, who are the Crips? Je? No, 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 no. You need to use this whole other form of the pronoun, which is the only one that can happen by itself, which is moi. And then if you want to be emphatic about it, you can say something like moi je prends les crêpes, which is often translated sort of like me, I'll have the crêpes. Yeah. But it actually sort of shows up in the same context as in a language like Spanish or Italian, where you would actually just put in the normal subject pronoun because you don't normally need it because the verb at the end tells you. Amazing. So I really kind of want to make the case (laughs) that this is actually, you know, it's not even a clinic anymore. It's actually fully glommed onto the verb. But, you know, uh, the Academy of Francaise is going to completely disagree with me. And it is a good demonstration that something, and a lot of the examples we've discussed in this episode start as words. And then in English, we've seen those weak forms of words allow them to become clitics. And mm-hmm. with the literal etymology of enclitic in Latin being to lean, so begin to lean on words, they're not fully attached. They're just mm-hmm. leaning on them, which I think is a really, I get a really cozy visual image with that mm. etymology. And then once they've been leaning on words for long enough, they become dependent and really attached to them as affixes. And this process of going from being an independent word, especially in these functional categories, through to being a fully attached part of the grammar is something that happens repeatedly within a single language across time and across all of our spoken and signed human languages. And this process of grammaticalizing through from being words to affixes and and occasionally stopping off as clitics in between. Yeah, like sometimes a clitic is this sort of, you know, pathway. So if you can think of like in English where it's like, okay, maybe that's a clitic, but maybe there's actually good reasons to say that it's part of the whole word by now. And sometimes something can sort of stay clitic-y, like maybe that apostrophe S in English, but there's all sorts of stuff sort of along the way. I mean, you could also see in Romance languages, it's so sort of well-established and has long been talked about historically that the pronouns are clitics, Mm -hmm. that maybe some of them are actually kind of not becoming clitics, like in French or in Spanish, you can do both the pronoun and the full noun in some contexts, like le di un regalo a mi madre, which is literally like to her, I gave a gift to my mother. Right. And in English, you can't do this. Really doubling down there. (laughs) You're doing both. (laughs) But in Spanish, you can. And so you could make the argument that maybe this is the beginning of just marking the object on the verb, which lots of languages do. And then they do have you put the the full noun as well. But it's sort of, this is a pathway to making it more grammatical than the the same thing in English where they, they're kind of competing for the same position. And it just happens so frequently in this direction and incredibly rarely in the other direction that something will break free from a word. And we talked about ish as a, you know, something's grammatical-ish. It can break (laughs) away and become its own thing-ish now. But like the reason we keep bringing up that one example is because it's so unusual and that the tide just flows in the other direction overwhelmingly. Yeah. The normal thing is for stuff to get sort of smaller and shorter, especially when it's said a lot, and then kind of gradually start merging with the words around it. And I, I just... It's such an interesting experience to be thinking of yourself in the middle of a language's history rather than like at some sort of, you know, end point, like everything that was going on was, was, you know, building up to this. 
And to say, no, like the stuff that we do now that's sort of slangy or casual or, you know, seems like it's just sort of reduced effort is going to be like, oh, yeah, no, here's this really grammatical thing that happens in another, you know, dozen generations. For more Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get Kiki Booba scarves, What the Frickative t-shirts, and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I tweet and blog as Superlinguo. I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter. My blog is allthingslinguistic.com, and my book about internet language is called Because Internet. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to 54 bonus episodes to listen to right now at patreon.com slash lingthusiasm, or follow the links from our website. Patrons also get access to our Discord chat room to talk with other linguistics fans and other rewards, as well as helping keep the show ad-free. Recent bonus topics include back-channeling, speaking under the influence, and an interview with Emily Greff from Planet Word. And remember, you can get a special pack of four Lingthusiasm stickers by becoming a Lingphabet patron before November 3rd, 2021. Can't afford to pledge? That's okay too. We also really appreciate it if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone who needs a little more linguistics in their life. Lingthusiasm is produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gorn. Our senior producer is Claire Gorn, our editorial producer is Sarah Doppiarella, our managing producer is Liz McCullough, and our music is Ancient City by The Triangles. Stay Lingthusiastic! Lingthusiastic!